Good morning, dear saints and blessed Epiphany, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. Today is Wednesday, January 17th, and you're listening to the program where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourish our faith. Well, my voice is still going out, but I promise I am the host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. In today's text, we're turning to Philippians chapter 2, and, and therein the Apostle Paul offers a profound exploration of humility and unity within the Christian community, guided, of course, by the example of Jesus. Paul urges the believers in Philippi to adopt a selfless attitude, prioritizing others' interests above their own. This chapter is renowned for its portrayal of Christ's humility and obedience, which serves as a model for us believers to emulate. Paul also says something curious. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's, uh, that's something we're going to get some clarity on today as we dig into our text. But before we do all of that, as I always do, I just want to thank you for listening. I know that there's all kinds of ways to tune into the program over the air. If you're in St. Louis online at KFUO.org, maybe the KFUO app or through your favorite podcasting app, smart speaker, or however you're connecting, I'm just glad you're here. So settle in, open your hearts and your minds. We are about to begin. Thy Strong Word is graciously supported in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. You can learn more about what they do for the church and the gospel at LHFmissions.org. And if you have any questions or comments about today's show, there's three ways to reach out. You can call in 800-730-2727. You can email pastorboo at gmail.com, or you can find me on Facebook. Send me a friend request or a text message. But joining us today is the Reverend Thomas Eckstein. He's the pastor of Concordia Lutheran Church in Jamestown, North Dakota. Good morning, Pastor Eckstein. Welcome back to the program. Good to be back, and and like you, my voice is recovering. <laughs> I I totally lost my voice last week. Thankfully, I had a retired pastor that was able to fill in for me. But uh, we're both on demand, it seems. I'm telling you, and I don't actually feel bad for what it's worth. It's just my voice is kind of squeaky and going in and out. And so anyway, I just for I just finished my Wednesday morning Bible study as usual, and. Uh, you know, I do a lot of talking in that, but that's okay. Together, we'll we'll get through it. People, I'm sure, will bear bear with us. The Holy Spirit will work with His Word however He wishes and whenever He whenever He pleases. So, I tell you what, before we get into our text, just start us off in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, we come before you today, and as we uh, examine uh, your words written by Paul in Philippians two, uh, help us to see the the awesome humility of your son. Uh, even though he, he is God Almighty from all eternity, he humbled himself even to the point of dying on the cross for us sinners that we might be your own forever. Uh, may, may this salvation that he's given us and the example he's set for us uh, motivate us to, to also live lives of loving humility to the glory of your name and to the benefit of our neighbor. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, here we go. Chapter two. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and read it. Verses uh, one through 11. Paul says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility 
count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All right, that's the end of verse 11. Heading back to the top. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, it's kind of interesting that he he's like, He's using this type of rhetoric, like if there's any encouragement in Christ. Well, of course there's encouragement course in Christ. Is, yeah. yeah, but but he does lay it out for us. Why don't you unpack it? Yeah, well, he starts out, of course, in our translation, it says so, but some others say therefore. And that always means, okay, what I'm saying now is in light of what I've just said previously. And, well, what did he say previously? Well, let me look at verse 29 of of chapter 1. It says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. What's his point there? Well, just as God has graciously given us faith in Christ for our salvation, he's also given us the privilege of suffering for him. And and that's important because uh, many people think, oh, if I'm suffering, that must mean God is ignoring me or has abandoned me. But Paul says, no, it's the opposite. Um, uh, if you believe in Jesus and he allows you to suffer for him, that is actually a privilege. Uh, obviously, Paul views his whole circumstance being imprisoned, uh, not as though God is forsaking him, because Paul says to live as Christ, to die is gain, but rather to suffer for Jesus is, is a privilege. It, it should, it's an, actually a gift. So with that in mind, Paul goes on now and says, so in, in light of all these things, all these blessings that we obviously have in Christ, you know, obviously we have comfort from his love, we have participation in the Spirit. Uh, we, we have affection and sympathy. <clears throat> Since we have all these things in Christ, he then goes on and says a couple other things. Uh, the result of all these gifts is that, first of all, be of the same mind. And by that, he doesn't mean, well, just agree. It doesn't matter what you agree on, just agree. No, that's not what he means. Uh, to be of the same mind means that, that we are one in God's teaching that we, we all say amen to the teaching of Christ given to us through his apostles. Uh, that's what it means to be of one mind, to confess the same thing. And then uh, it says having the same love. And again, uh, love is not anything I want it to be, you know, but love as defined by God's word, what love is. And then um, he goes on then after saying these positive things, you know, be of the same mind, have the same love. He says, don't uh, do anything out of rivalry or conceit. Uh, so we're to exist the, the sinful, uh, worldly uh, uh, competition, you know, dog-eat-dog world, where, you know, uh, I'm going to try to get on top and, and, and uh, get what I want out of life, even if I have to step on others to do it. He says, no, that's not the way of the believer who's been set free in Jesus. Instead, he says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. 
Now, this doesn't mean that we don't have our own interests. Uh, we all have to, you know, uh, take care of our own basic needs. But what he is saying is, uh, as a believer, uh, our focus is not on ourselves, ultimately, but on how we have been set free to serve others. Uh, and then, of course, he goes on to give the beautiful example of Jesus, who who is God Almighty from all eternity, and yet he, he emptied himself, our text says, which, which does not mean that he stopped being God. Jesus was fully God in the flesh. But rather, uh, rather than using his power for himself, for his own advantage, he, he gave his life away and became a servant to others. And so he said, just as Jesus did thus, as with the result of us being saved, we're now set free uh, to become servants of others as well. Well, let's look at a couple of these things. So this idea of unity, same mind, full accord, one mind that Paul is talking about, this is a this is a pretty common topic for Paul. I mean, you think of Corinthians especially, but but in all of his writings, it kind of exudes with this admonition that, you know, Christians, you're, you're supposed to be united in the body of Christ. And, and I'm glad you yeah. brought up that it's not that we're all you know, Borg assimilated to one another. We're not all, you know, a one mind group think that kind of thing, but the unity that we do have with one another is founded on Christ and his word. We should seek after being unified under the will of God. And, and there are many in this world, <clears throat> pardon me, um, who I think for a good reason, right? Trying to put a good spin on it, Christians who desperately want to be unified with all other Christians. And that's a noble goal. But yeah. then they kind of throw out the thing upon which we're supposed to be unified in order just to kind of have a worldly unification. And, 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 and that makes churches like ours, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, where we seek to be unified with all other Christians, but we want to be unified on something. And that is, of course, on the doctrine passed down to us through the prophets and apostles. Yes, and I think it's important to remember, even though it's a noble goal to want all Christians to be united, we, we have to avoid, like the plague, a worldly unity that is based on agreeing to disagree right. uh, and ignoring God's Word. And that's why we need to realize, even though Jesus himself prayed that, that his people would be one, the fact is that is going to be an ongoing battle this side of heaven because of sin. Um, you know, that doesn't mean we don't strive to achieve it and, and be as united as we possibly can be. But but the goal is that we do that by going to God's Word. And if we have to have a long, drawn-out you know, study together in order to achieve that unity, um, so be it. But but we should never compromise God's Word in order to have some uh, you know, superficial unity that, that really is uh, based on agreeing to disagree rather than saying amen to God's Word. So, yeah, we're, we're always seeking throughout church history, we always have to combat um, confusion and false teaching by, by asking one another, let's go back to God's Word and see what this says. Uh, we, we need to do the hard work of, of finding out what He says so that we can be unified around that but, and not mere human opinion. And, and it's not just about ecumenism either. I mean, Paul is also telling the Philippians about the unity they already have. So we do have a unity, even with those Christians with whom we might disagree. And that is, of course, the, the shared salvation we have in, in Jesus. But that doesn't mean we don't take the teachings of the scriptures 
and just say, well, it doesn't matter how you interpret that or it doesn't matter what that means. Exactly. No, of course not. We have that shared salvation, and I think we should emphasize that more than we do. But at the same time, because we all have the shared salvation, we, we don't want to shortchange you know, what we believe, teach, and confess. And, and I, I want to move into the next section, too, where, excuse me, he talks about the uh, having – no, no, no. He talks about uh, let each one of you look not only to his own interests but to the interests of others. Now, we've been taught, and rightly so, that we should, as Paul says here, count others more significant than yourselves. And we don't get a lot in the scriptures about taking care of yourself. We don't get a lot in the scriptures about the me time or taking a mental health day. <laughs> and, and well, and I think the reason why is not because you're not supposed to take care of yourself, but because it is our natural inclination to take care of ourselves. Yes. But it is nice here that Paul does remind us, though, that, yes, of course you have your own interests. God isn't right. saying if he gives you you know, a, a good job, you're supposed to give every dime away to, you know, the needy while your own family starves. I mean, no, you have your yeah. own interests, but you also need to look to the interests of others. Anyway, yeah, go ahead. And, and I often think how, how this translates to what, what, what Lutherans have called the doctrine of vocation. You know, whatever I do in life uh, with the skills and talents God has given me, it's not supposed to be exclusively about me. Um, it's, instead, it's like, okay, how can I honor God and serve others through whatever vocation I have? Um, wh- whether it's being a doctor or, or, or a lawyer or a politician or a garbage collector or a stay-at-home mom or a teacher at school or, or, or whatever your vocation may be, flipping burgers at, at McDonald's. Um, the question is, how do I do this in such a way that it honors God and benefits my neighbor? And, um, and so uh, uh, rather than it's all about me, what's going to make me happy, what's going to make me rich, what's going to uh, uh, make me feel fulfilled, it's instead, okay, how do I honor God and serve my neighbor through whatever vocation I have? And like you so said, we all have our own needs. We, we need to have food and clothing and shelter. God understands that. But then it's like, okay, uh, uh, it's not just about me, though. It's how, how do I right. use the skills and abilities God has given me to be a blessing to others also? Now, there's two things that stand out for me from this last section of this first part that we've just read. And, of course, the idea that we have Christ Jesus who – Though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God, but emptied himself. Now, I, I know what this means as, as a pastor and trained in these things, but I can tell you that without my own training and study and obviously benefiting from the cloud of witnesses, this is a pretty confusing text. I mean, Jesus is God, so why does yeah. it say the form of God? And then he obedi- he was obedient, so God exalted him. It's very, I think, confusing to either new Christians or even non-Christians how we understand this Trinitarian relationship. And, and obviously, we're not going to be able to explain it to anybody's satisfaction in the next 15 minutes. But, but just taking that a little bit, just explain a little more what it means that Jesus emptied himself and was obedient. And what does it mean that he was in the form of God? Isn't Jesus God? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, when, when this is um, – uh, uh, referring to the, the form of God, uh, it's just another way of saying that, that even though Jesus was human, because this is all about uh, uh, Christ Jesus coming into the flesh, 
So to be in the form of God means that even though he was in the flesh, he was still God from all eternity. We think of, 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 of John chapter 1, you know, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and then later on, and the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So Jesus is the one unique example of where you have a human being who is in the form of God. Uh, he's, he's human, fully human, but also fully God in human flesh. But having said that, even though Jesus was God in human flesh, which honestly, I, I, I shared this with my people in my youth, I said, God in human flesh, you're more powerful than Superman. You know, I, 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 you know, I recently right. watched The Man of Steel, which came out about 10 years ago, and it's like, man, look at all the stuff that Superman can do. But it's like, uh, that's nothing compared to being God in human flesh. Uh, Superman doesn't have a chance against that. And yet, even though Jesus had uh, the power of God Almighty, because he is God at his disposal, he, he did not use that, as the text says, to his own advantage. But But emptied himself, which means he didn't stop being God, but rather became a servant, uh, gave his life away. And it's interesting, when you look at the New Testament, whenever Jesus does miracles, it's always for the benefit of others. Uh, Unless I'm missing something or forgetting something, I can't think of times Jesus does miracles for his own benefit. It's it's always for the benefit of others. And so here we see uh, the Almighty Son of God, who is God in human flesh in the form of God, taking on uh, the nature of being a a, a true servant, uh, even to the point of dying in our place of, of judgment. Yeah, I'm just thinking about you talking about Jesus doing. Yeah, and he does, of course. He's come to 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 serve, not be served. We get that language from Jesus, and that is so. Not only is it antithetical not to to what the Jews would expected of the Messiah, but it really is against your rational thought of any god or even any leader. The the idea of this this whole servant leadership idea that's actually completely modern postmodern in, in this time. You know, even a king wouldn't be caught dead being in a servant's role. And yet here's right. the God of the universe who comes down and, yeah, he humbles himself to be obedient. And then it says God has exactly. highly exalted yeah. him. Um, uh, no, go ahead, please, because then I want to talk about his actual name. Go ahead. Yeah, just a brief comment. That's the key to understanding, too, what, what the kingdom of God is in the Gospels. Because, you know, again, unless you, you're, you're aware of the full teaching of Scripture, you hear kingdom of God, and, and immediately you think of an earthly king who goes and conquers his enemies and, and you know, creates an empire. But but no, kingdom of God in, in the Gospels is God coming into the world to rescue and save his enemies, uh, and gather them into his kingdom as his dear children. And, and we see this already in the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, where the angel tells Joseph, name the baby Jesus. Why? Because he's going to save his people from their sins. So the kingdom of God is, is different than anything we can think of as far as a worldly kingdom. It's about the king of kings coming to the world to serve and rescue his enemy. No, and I think that is incredibly important because that also dictates to us or informs us about how we live out our lives in God's kingdom. Um, whether you have a role or vocation as as a pastor or someone or as the president of the synod or uh, as the pope of the Catholic Church, you know, when you look at your roles as, say, leaders, you look to Christ and you say, look, look what he did. And, and this is how the kingdom is. Now, it says, though, that, that, that he has the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. 
This is a super, super small point, but I do know that there are listeners out there who get a little confused about, like, why do we call Jesus Jesus? You know, in the in the Greek here, the word here is uh, Jesus. Um, yeah. We know the Latin transliteration. We know his real name is Joshua, Yeshua. His mama called him Yeshua. So when it talks about the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Again, simplistic, but we aren't talking about like the name so much as who Jesus is, uh, or, yeah. or at least unpack it in a, in a way that's better than what I'm doing. Yes. Well, uh, well, you're doing a fine job, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I think of what, uh, you know, again, the, the angel said to Joseph, name the baby Jesus. Well, uh, again, the Greek version of the Old Testament named Joshua, but both names mean God saves. Now, here, here's the thing. There were, there were a lot of actually Jewish boys named Jesus. <laughs> and uh, but but Jesus, uh, the son of God from all eternity, is the one who truly fits uh, what that name means. He really is the God who saved, which is also um, uh, stressed even more when Paul makes the point that uh, Jesus, the Christ, who, you know, again, his title, the Christ, the promise, the anointed one. But it says Jesus, the Christ is Lord. And that's significant because in this context, the, the Greek word that we translate as Lord is, is curious. And, and here Paul is, 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 the Jews of Jesus' day would often use the Greek word curious to stand in for the, the holy name of God from the Old Testament, Yahweh. Uh, I am who I am. And so what, what Paul is actually saying here is that Jesus, God incarnate, who is the Christ, the promised Savior, is Yahweh. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the creator, uh, and uh, this is all to the glory of God the Father. So we get some Trinitarian mystery here as well. Um, but the whole point is that uh, Jesus is much more than a mere man. He's much more than some divine but created being. Uh, he is the eternal Son of God himself, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this idea that Jesus is Lord is super important. Now, and I know in some traditions, they might even overemphasize this because they say, well, you know, Jesus is in charge. We got to do what he says. And then right. and it kind of bleeds into we're now earning salvation by doing what he says. But but there is a reality that, you know, everybody wants Jesus the Savior, but people resist Jesus the Lord. So there is something right. worth pointing out that, yeah, Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the chosen one, the anointed one. But yeah, I'm sorry, but he's also in charge. <laughs> and yes. so that that should affect how we live. Um, you know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it says in Proverbs, which is what I'm studying on Wednesday mornings with my people. But yeah, so what does that fear mean? It's a recognition that God is who he says he is, and that is the all-powerful creator of the universe outside of time and space. And I'm glad you made that, that important distinction. Um, you know, we can fall into either ditch, you know, uh, uh, on the one hand, uh, we can fall into the ditch of thinking, oh, we, uh, Jesus is Lord, and so we earn his love by obeying him. Of course, that's not biblical. But we also fall into the other ditch where Jesus is my Savior, and, and now that uh, I've been rescued from the consequences of my sin, I can live any way I want now and not have to fear judgment. Well, no, <laughs> that's not biblical either. In fact, what, what caused the whole problem in the first place is when, when the devil tempted Adam and Eve, 
you know, either the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, what did that really mean? That the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a warning sign that God is Lord and he decides what's good and evil. To take that knowledge for ourselves is to call ourselves Lord. And and that 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 rebellion separates us from God. So so even though we're saved from beginning to end by the fact that Jesus is our savior, now that we are saved, we have the joy and privilege of calling him Lord, uh, not in order to earn our salvation, but in response to the salvation we've been given. But, but, but to deny that Jesus is Lord, uh, to, to, to make ourselves Lord, is to sever ourselves from our loving God and Creator. Indeed, indeed. So I tell you what, I don't want to get into the next section uh, before we take a break. So we're going to go to break just a little bit early. I hope that's okay for you down there in St. Louis pushing the buttons. Um, We will see you folks when we get back on the other side. We'll pick it up with verse 12. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Thomas Eckstein, pastor of Concordia Lutheran Church in Jamestown, North Dakota. Remember, folks, you can reach out to me, Pastor Boo, at gmail.com, on Facebook, or by phone, 800-730-2727. All right, so hopping back in the text, because we still have a good two-thirds of it to get through. Uh, We are going to move into now verse 12. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So he says, yeah, you know, you guys are always doing a good job obeying uh, especially when I'm around, but but even in my absence, I want you to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, of course, if you quit reading there, boy, that's teaching something that I don't know that we would agree with, but how do we understand this? Yes. Uh, well, first of all, when he says work out your salvation, even that 
Um, he, he's not saying do something to merit your salvation as though you're not saved yet, because uh, the, the, the beginning of Philippians makes it clear they're already saved. They're already redeemed by the work of Christ. So it can't mean do something to get saved. They're already saved. So what does it mean? To work out their salvation, a, a good way uh, would be to understand, live it out. Now that you are saved, what does that look like for your daily life? And then he adds, uh, do this with fear and trembling. Uh, the, the idea is that, that hey, we're living in a world where we have to daily fight against the desires of our sinful nature. And the idea that we would give in to sin or follow the world should result in fear uh, of judgment. It's like, wow, you know, um, compromising God's word and going the way of the world, uh, that's not a good thing. Uh, to, to, to spurn God, uh, we, we should be uh, fearful of, of the judgment we deserve. But, but here's the amazing thing. According to Paul, he, he gives them this comfort. He says, you know, e- even though it's always possible for us to fall short and, and therefore be afraid of the judgment we deserve, God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Or I think how back earlier in Philippians 1, you know, he, he talked about in, in, in verse 6, let me just read that briefly again. Uh, he says, uh, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. So on the one hand, Paul says, boy, trying to fight against sin and, and realizing that you fall short, that, that can, can uh, uh, result in fear and trembling. But here's some good news for you. It's God who works in you to will and to act for his good pleasure. In other words, the God who saved you is going to help you to work out your salvation in the sense that he will help you to live as his child in daily repentance and faith. So I don't think Paul is saying, oh, I want you to be constantly scared of God's judgment. I think what he's saying is, even though we rightly have fear and and terror over the sin in our life, I got some good news for you. God is at work in you, and he will bring your salvation to completion. So keep your focus on Christ, and God will help you to say no to sin and yes to his loving will for your life. And, and and that whole and it really hinges on that, you know, for it is God who works in you, because even that fear and trembling, I, I also think back to, well, Proverbs, right? Not just because I talked about it today this morning, but but we have you know, this idea of the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so, yeah, if God is the one doing the activity within you, if he's the one enabling it, working through you, then to kind of refuse is to refuse what God wants for you and want, wants to yeah. do through you. And so, yeah, you work um, for his good pleasure. Yeah, and I like that, right? It's really like living out your own salvation, because now that you've been saved, well, what's that look like? And, and that's that's what he's getting at. And, and then he says, do things all without grumbling or disputing so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. There are some Christian traditions that believe that part of the Christian life is about becoming perfect in this life, sort of a Right. You know, uh, theification or whatever it's called, uh, deification or something. But but that's not really what we can expect. Not this side of Christ's return. Right. Exactly. I, I, it's important to know that when Paul says that you, you, we, he wants you to be blameless and innocent, he doesn't mean that we can actually achieve a sinless state in this life. But, but the rest of Scripture is clear. We battle with the desires of our sinful nature until the day we die. But 
what he means here is live in such a way that uh, when people see how you're living, uh, they, they realize, wow, they're striving to conform to God rather than the world. And, and I would argue, even if we do fall in moments of weakness, which all Christians do, rather than uh, justifying it and affirming it and wallowing in our sin like a pig in the mud, we, we also show our connection with Christ by repenting and saying, hey, I, I blew it, I admit it. And I want God's forgiveness, and I want him to help me to do better. So I think what Paul is getting at here is live in such a way that when people look at your life, they realize, oh, this guy takes his faith seriously. You know, that's what he's getting at here. Yeah, you should look different than the twisted generation. Um, one of the notes here I have is from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 32, 5. He says, they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Here we have that same language of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. I think what this raises, or at least a topic it could raise for us, is how much does the world want – well, first of all, how much does the church uh, seemingly want to conform itself to the world for the sake of that – either numbers or the false unity, but they desire to be worldly so that they don't, I guess, meet the suffering and persecution that comes from following after God's will. And, and I say that not pointing to any particular church, but really what's in all of us, right? We all desire for the churches to be full. And we always think, well, what could we do to get people in here? And maybe even with good intentions, right? We want them to, to meet Christ. And yet that's not how God has designed it, right? He wants us to be like a light on a hill, right? He wants us to be, um, uh, stand out from the generation. Absolutely. And, um, and I, I'm glad, you know, uh, even though I thank God, I belong that you and I are in a church body that strives to be faithful to God's word. Um, um, we have to be humble and realize we, we could be led astray just like anybody else. And, and so, again, remaining humble, but also realizing that, hey, um, even though we give all glory to God when we are faithful, he does call us to speak the truth in love and to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And I, I think, like you mentioned, that the challenge uh, for some today is like, well, if we preach repentance, if we tell people they need to um, uh recognize that some things in their lives are evil and, and they need forgiveness for it, oh, that, that might turn them off and, uh, you know, our numbers will diminish. Well, you know, when you look in the Scripture, uh, God doesn't care about numbers. He cares about uh, uh, being faithful to His Word. And and we let the Holy Spirit worry about uh, about the numbers. And so, yes, we all want the church to grow, but we, we, we should not try to grow it by worldly means because then, then we've compromised the entire mission of God. Instead, we simply speak the truth in love and then uh, trust the Holy Spirit to draw in whom he will draw in. When he's, dis when he's contrasting being blameless and innocent children of God with the crooked and twisted generation, one thing I found that was kind of interesting is that the Greek word used here uh, let's see here. It is uh, a main toss, uh, excuse my pronunciation, uh, is the same word that's used when it talks about pastors being above reproach. So, mm -hmm. so and, and we always say, well, your pastor is not perfect. He never will be. So what does above reproach mean? And, and of course, we say, well, it means that at least nothing by his own fault should he be doing that causes people to point to him and say, look. This is the kind of leader that's in the church. This is the kind of 
of, of, of uh, this is how the, the church is. And, and we reflect as pastors on the church itself and even on Christ's word. Well, that applies to everybody who's a Christian too. And we see yeah. here being above reproach isn't being sinless, but it is being honest, honest in your sin, but at the same time, yes. you know, not out there doing things that's going to cloud the gospel. And and we know that our sins cloud the gospel because it's the first thing that opponents to God throw in our faces. You know, you guys are hypocrites or look at all of these scandals in the church. And it's like, yeah, I mean, it's easy for us to say, yeah, I mean, when you have millions of pastors and priests around the world, you're going to have a, a good handful of really bad ones. But, yes. you know, that's not so this is why it's so important, I guess, is to strive to live above reproach. Yes, and I, I, I always tell my members, if people notice the good things that you do, uh, praise the Lord, then give all glory to God for that. But, but here's another way we're different. If we do fall in moments of weakness, and we all do, uh, we, we let people know, hey, I, I own this. I, I was wrong, and I've asked God to forgive me, and I want to do better. Uh, that's a big difference than, than uh, throwing a parade for your sin. You know, and, and I think that's what Paul is getting at here. Live in such a way that you show that you take your faith seriously. And if you do fall, which we all do, then then show the world that you take your faith seriously by repenting and striving to do better. And I think that's what he's getting at. Here. Paul talks about, you know, not laboring in vain a lot. Uh, you know, he says here that I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. He says the same kind of thing in Galatians. You know, he says, you know, uh, I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had run in vain. He says the same thing in Thessalonians. Um, and he says it elsewhere, too. I wonder if Paul is revealing a little bit about his own, hmm, I don't know, frustrations, maybe, because He's out there proclaiming the word of God. His faith is convinced, of course, in the way that he was called and, and he's being inspired by the Holy Spirit. But like any pastor or any Christian who's struggled to proclaim the word, he's got to get frustrated when people reject oh, yeah. it or when people accept it, but then walk away from it. So I, I, I almost sense in these words just a little bit of the humanness of Paul. He constantly is yeah. like, I just, guys, please don't let me be in prison and have the snot be dead in me outside the city gates and maybe even die for the faith all in vain. You know, not that he thinks his salvation is in vain, but he wants others to come. Yes. And that's not, I mean, uh, you and I as pastors, uh, we've maybe been there also. It's like, you know, I, I'm, I'm doing the best to, to be faithful to God and proclaim his word. And yet there, there's some people that just throw it back in your face and it's discouraging. But I think where we take comfort is, and I think Paul would say this too, is that even though it's very discouraging and frustrating when people reject the word of God in your ministry, you take comfort in the fact that God will use your ministry to bear fruit somehow, even if it's one person. And, and I try to remind myself of that. Uh, are, are there people who have rejected what I've taught? Sure. But has God worked through my message to, to touch some people? Yes, he has. And I think, think Paul is, is, is just saying here, uh, I, deep down in my heart, I, I really believe uh, God is going to do that through you. You know, uh, has everybody listened to my message? No, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that in your case, uh, you, you've embraced it and will continue to walk in it. And, and that brings me some joy and peace. Yeah. And he does point to that in verse 17, because, you know, we've all heard of John three sixteen, but first John three sixteen says, by this, we know love that he laid down his life for us. 
and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Perhaps Paul had that in mind when he says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. Right. You know, it, it, it just really genuinely seems here that he's, as you said, he's saying, I don't want to be running the race in vain. And he's expressing his love and joy toward them that if, if all, if all that he was able to do was to witness to these Philippian Christians, he can die happy, so to speak. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I honestly, if, if on the final day, uh, I find out that only one person was saved through my preaching and teaching, that, that would be enough to make me rejoice for all eternity. But, but I think you and I and other pastors can take comfort in the fact, too, that, that again, in all glory to God, it's His work. But, but we can take comfort that through our ministry, we, we probably touched lives that we don't even realize. And uh, we can take comfort in that. And I just want to add to it, because I know that you'll agree with this. You know, folks at home, you don't have to be a pastor to have that influence, right? Because the Holy yeah. Spirit's the one who works when and where he pleases through the word, you don't even have to have all the answers. You just need to know Jesus and share Jesus with others. Um, and, and you get that joy, too. Well, moving right along, verse 19. He's bringing up Timothy here. Uh, it, a little bit. It's almost like a little bit of housekeeping, but it's right in the middle of the letter, which is a little odd. But anyway, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I, too, may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth and how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. So here's young Pastor Timothy, the recipient of Paul's letters to Timothy. And, and Paul looks at this guy as a son, you know, and, and Timothy is such a faithful pastor and servant to Paul. Tell us a little bit more about Timothy. And, and I don't know, why is he writing this kind of right in the middle of the letter? Yeah, well, as to why, as to why Paul's writing this right in the middle letter, I don't know for sure. <laughs> I can speculate, but, <laughs> but I think you know he, he's just got done talking about how uh, how uh, Paul is is been called to be a servant of God's people, and how now Paul is calling the Philippians to be servants of others. So here, you know, I, I can't help but think that maybe Paul lifts up Timothy as another great example of someone who has a Christ like. Uh, life. And um, uh, as far as Timothy, what we know of him is, uh, you know, he, he, his father was not a Christian, but his mother and grandmother were. Uh, Paul talks about that in the pastoral epistles. And, and apparently, uh, Paul had a major role in, in, in mentoring and, and forming Timothy with the result that Timothy uh, himself became a pastor. And uh, here we see that, that Paul uh, lifts up Timothy as an example of, of a Christ-like servant who, who serves others uh, with a proper spirit. You know, and, and Paul makes this comment, he says, verse 21, uh, in contrast to Timothy, he says, they all seek their own interests. Well, who's he talking about? Well, we're not really sure. Um, uh, my guess is he's talking about some pastors who uh, have less than Christ-like motives for doing the ministry, uh, maybe are doing it for their own uh, self, you know, uh, 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 pride or, or, or to gain financially, whatever the reasons. But Paul con 
him was Timothy, who who is out there to truly uh, have a heart for serving God's people that they might know Jesus and his love. And so here we see that even though we're all sinners and we all fall short of the glory of God and we all uh, live by grace and are saved by grace, on the other hand, Paul doesn't hesitate pointing people to other Christians and saying, hey, look at what God is doing in their life. They're a good example. Follow that. I agree with you. It is a little bit of speculation, but, you know, Paul is a rhetorician. He knows how to make arguments. And, yeah, so whereas I think ordinarily you might find something like this at the end of the letter, I would suspect that it's here just for the reasons you said, right? He's saying, look, I, you know Timothy's proven worth, and so he's lifting up these gentlemen as examples. Plus, <clears throat> pardon me, plus Timothy is no stranger to the Philippians. They, they know who he is, and he adds in here that he's coming too. It's got to be connected a little bit to even what he said earlier. You know, I, I know you do good works while I'm around. You do the right things while I'm around. I hope you're doing it while I'm gone. I've always read this mostly in Corinthians, but even here, Paul kind of reminds them that, hey, I'm going to be popping in. <laughs> I, 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 I care about you enough not just to set you out and then just hope you do it right, but I'll be there. I'll be watching. And 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 that's a good thing, not not something for them to fear. They should be joyed, overjoyed that Paul is coming. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, and, and, and this is encouraging. It, 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 here we see that even though there are some, sadly, people and pastors who are not faithful to the Lord, there are others, people and pastors who are faithful to the Lord. And it's not a, a, a work-righteous thing or a pharisaical thing to point out um, the good qualities in those who are faithful servants of Jesus. Uh, in fact, uh, my guess is if you do that, they would be the first ones to give all glory to God. But, but even Paul says, you know, follow my example, you know, and he's not being arrogant when he says that. Right. He's just saying, you know, God has called some believers to live in a way that honors him. I want you to imitate that. And I think, you know, we can do that in our culture today as well. Well, the next guy he brings up is uh, someone whom they also knew, and and it seems from the text that they were a little worried about him because he had gotten sick. So let's look at the rest of our chapter today, 25 through 30. Paul continues, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, I swear that Paul must be from Minnesota or somewhere in the Midwest, because that's a little passive aggressive there at the end <laughs> where he says, where he says this, just so you know, yeah, he was sick. He died kind of pulling up the slack that you guys were. No, I don't, I don't know. We'll see how that looks like. But um, yeah, so we have Epaphroditus, someone who he's lifting up as, someone who's risking their life for the gospel. And that, and that is an, another characteristic that he wants to elevate. 
Yes, absolutely. And, uh, you know, and I think <laughs> you know, it's always hard to know the motives of, of, of people. But I think here uh, when he's saying, well, Epaphroditus provided what you couldn't, I don't think that's so much an accusation as simply a statement of reality. Uh, you guys weren't in a position to help me, but thank God. Uh, Epaphroditus was, and uh, and so he, he met a need that you weren't in a position to, to meet, and um, and then he, he goes on to stress that that um, Epaphroditus uh, was indeed very very sick, but that God mercifully spared him, uh, uh, and then it said not only did He mercifully spare him, but He also uh, uh, did that so that I could have less anxiety. Yeah, so, so here, yeah, here Paul is simply saying, you know, there are times when we as God's people, we get down, we get discouraged, we get frustrated. And I I appreciate Paul saying that because, you know, sometimes we get the impression that the apostles were super pastors, you know, that they, 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 they they endure all this persecution with a big smile on their face and, and, and their blood pressure was low. No, here Paul is openly admitting, boy, uh, things were rough for me. I had a ton of anxiety and so God had mercy on me. He, 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 it gave me this this reprieve in the midst of a very difficult time, and and that's a reminder to me that that you know uh, whether you're a layperson or a pastor, it's all right to go to God and say, hey, I, I'm really anxious right now. I'm going through a really hard time right now. I need your help, and I'll trust you to help me get through it. I think that's such a good point, you know, because these aren't these sort of stoic monolith kind of men and women out there who are just you know, serving God and, and just, you know, laughing in the face of danger. But yeah, no, I, I do. I agree with you that this is comforting to me. Someone who gets anxious myself, I struggle with anxiety. And and so it's like, hey, look, you know, yes, the scriptures say, don't be anxious, just, you know, pray to the Lord. But then it's comforting to know that despite that uh, holy revelation, you know, even St. Paul's like, huh, you know, I was anxious <laughs> there for a while. Yeah. And, yes. and, and also so that I not, so that I don't accidentally defame the Philippian Christians here 2000 years later, you're absolutely right. You know, in their, um, lacking of service, he actually clarifies that in chapter four, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly now, that now at length, you have revived your concern for me. But then he makes it clear you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. And, and in right. fact, I almost wonder if. Part of their, you know, if they're sending Epaphroditus to Paul to help him and minister to him, once he gets sick, perhaps that is part of what cut off their ability, like his inability to be that messenger. Maybe that's why. I mean, we don't know. But so that's why they were so worried. They're like, hey, we want to support Paul. We want to help Paul. But the guy we do it through, I hear he's sick and they're worried and Paul's anxious because he's like, how am I going to get the support I need? And then God works it all out. Yeah. And one thing I want to add, uh, even though God in his mercy does give us moments of reprieve and healing, I, I think of this past summer, I, I was really sick this past summer. I had a gallbladder surgery that went south. And and I remember saying, oh. God, if you want me to get back in the ministry, you're going to have to bring me some healing here because I can't do it the way I am going through now. And God in his mercy does do that. He, he, he gives us times of reprieve. But even when he doesn't, and I think Paul gets to that in, in, in Philippians 1, because he didn't know I might end up being executed for my faith. Well, what do we do then when, when God doesn't give us the reprieve we want, when we are down in the dumps and, and we might even have to die for the faith? Well, that's when Paul says, well, if that's the case, then to live is Christ, to die is gain. You know, e- even if I have to die for the faith, I still have complete victory in Jesus. I need to cling to that and remember that hope. 
you know, you're, you're calling out for, for healing and, and even in the way, right? Like I can't do ministry for you if I'm gone, brother or dad or father, sorry. And, uh, but you know, I think of Psalms, right? How often did the Psalms say, I have Psalm 30 pulled up. What gain is there in my bloodshed in my descent to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your faithfulness? I mean, obviously we're not mocking God, but at the same time, God's our father. We can go to him and be honest saying, I have more work to do. I want to keep serving you. There's nothing right. wrong with that. At the same time, you know, the Lord decides, um, you know, and, and death doesn't have the final say, even when we face it. But yeah, I remember you being sick. You couldn't be on the show for a little while. And um, so now my joy, now my joy and my anxiety is relieved knowing that you're better and that you get to be on the show with us again. Yeah. yeah and then, I can talk again, too. So that's, <laughs> that's good. So uh, he says, I'm more than eager to send him that you can rejoice, right? Once you know him. And then 29. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men for he nearly died. So that honor such men is important because, yeah. you know, we obviously honor the cloud of witnesses. We honor saints whose lives were exemplary. We honor saints whose lives weren't very exemplary and yet they had trust in Christ. I mean, you know, but these, this idea that there are heroes in the faith, even ones who are currently alive, it's fine. It's okay. It's a good thing. You know, we're not praying to saints to have them pass on messages to God. We're not elevating them as gods, but let's not neglect you know, all these examples that we get from history and even people who are alive around us today that we can be inspired by. Yes. And what I've found is that, that when you do honor such people who have served the Lord because they've been such wonderful examples, what I've found is that such people will then say, all glory to God. You know, exactly. it, 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 he gets all the credit for anything he's done through me. So on the one hand, it's good to, to, to point to to, to uh, Christ-like saints as great examples for us to follow. And at the same time, these same Christ-like saints give all glory back to Christ. So it's all good. <laughs> yes, exactly. And it also means if we want to thank you in the bulletin, let us thank you. All right. So <laughs> folks yeah. at home that always resist, no, we want to thank you. But of course, yeah, right. God's the one who does the work in us. And that's how we started our conversation. It is God who works in you. But you're still working out, that is living out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, I think that brings our conversation to an end. Any, anything else you want the people to know before we wrap it up? Well, just to end by, by remembering uh, what a Savior we have. He, even though he was God in human flesh, he became a servant even to the point of dying on the cross for you. Now, that's the Savior we can follow. Absolutely. Absolutely. Folks, it has been a blessing to have on the show this morning our guest, the Reverend Thomas Eckstein, pastor of Concordia Lutheran Church in Jamestown, North Dakota. Brother, thanks for being on the program. My privilege, yep. Well, tomorrow we have the Reverend Dr. John Rickert. He is a pastor emeritus uh, who's currently living in South Carolina, and he talks with us about Chapter 3. In chapter 3, the Apostle Paul does not mince words when he warns the Philippians against those who demand and require circumcision for Gentile believers. True circumcision, Paul reminds us, is inward, of the heart, and by the Holy Spirit. Paul talks about his own righteousness, and, and he says that any perceived righteousness he has by keeping the law, he counts as loss, rubbish, compared to that surpassing value of knowing Christ. 
And he urges the Philippians to stand firm and rejoice in the Lord, not putting confidence in the flesh, but seeking God's will. That and a lot more tomorrow when we gather around God's word again. And so until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.